Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to another edition of Shadow Talk, a weekly roundup of the latest threat intelligence. We'll be taking you on a journey through this week's latest stories. Our first stop, we'll look at tax return fraud and the new ways criminals are targeting businesses and individuals. On Router, we'll catapult you through the news of microtech devices being targeted with Sunshot malware and its express delivery as Hermes ransomware is delivered by Green Flash Sundown Exploit Kit, which exploits shock a vulnerability and Adobe Flash Player. And will be knocking on the back door as claims arise that vulnerabilities affecting AMD chips are being shipped to customers. And joining us today, we have Harrison Van Riper. Hello, Harrison. Hey, how's it going, Mike? Very well, thank you. We have Rose Bernard. Hi, Mike. I've been told not to say Bernard's Corner anymore as it doesn't reach enough international audiences. So I'm... <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't got gone for not now, Bernard, really. Oh, well, th- there's still editing hope yet. <laughs> and we've got Rafa. Hello, Raf. Hi there, Mike. Anyway, it's tax season. Um, a couple of weeks left um, to submit your tax returns here in the US, which means it's a proven time of year for cybercrime. You've seen loads of stuff happening in 2018, as per usual. Raf, why don't you kick things off by explaining some of the main types of fraud we would likely to see leading up to this deadline day. So yeah, you're right, Mike. This time of year is usually rife for tax return fraud. So cyber criminals see a lot of value in tax return documents. The main type of documents that we've seen um, going around on forums and people requesting on, the, on some of these underground communities are so W-2 forms. So these are the ones that employers send to employees and the IRS to report annual wages and taxes withheld from their paychecks. Then there's 1040 forms, which are used to report individuals' gross income, and there's 1099 forms, which are used for sort of like self-employment purposes. And as I said, people are looking for these on underground communities, requesting them, trying to find templates, but also cyber criminals are obtaining them through network intrusions, through phishing campaigns, business email compromise, which is something we talked about quite a lot as well. So in the business email compromise realm, so in a tax version of this scam, a victim will ask a, an employee at a company to transfer tax documents instead of wiring funds, which is how we usually see this, this type of attack play out. In terms of scam pages through phishing emails, so they usually use sort of the main squats of well-known or reputable tax filing companies or other related services. But I mean, Raf, that's not the only way that these criminals can target tax season. I mean, if you're a criminal who's a little bit lazier, you know, you kind of like the crime to come to you, you can just bypass all of these methods altogether and you can buy documents online. So you can buy stolen forms or forged forms or pre-filled in forms for about 40 to $50. Um, if you're just looking for things like social security numbers, these can be obtained for about $1. And if you're looking for personal information, you can get package deals. So either partial personally identifiable information or what's called fools, which is obviously spelt with a Z because cyber criminals are gangster. And these will often be full names, social security numbers, driver's license, ID card, passports, proof of address. And they'll usually be about $50. And you know, for those of us who used to play computer games with the run through booklet, you can even get guides for conducting t- tax return fraud. So there's a whole lot of options out there. Nice, yeah. Uh, one thing we've also seen kind of this year and, and in previous years is the use of 
Dedix. Uh, and that is, tax filing companies are obviously a big target. And Rap was talking about how phishing pages and, and the like are, are lucrative targets to get these pieces of information from. With Dedix, it works by having access to other people's computers, and um, so dedicated access there. And then if that particular computer has the tax filing software on it, then they can use that to actually gain the credentials of the user's account as well. So that's something we've been seeing this year. Raf, what, what kind of advice would you give to organisations who are trying to prevent tax return fraud this year and indeed individuals? A few things. I mean, the IRS provides some really good resources for understanding the latest techniques. They do their own reporting on this. They've talked about a few different phishing and ransomware campaigns that they've seen already. So I advise people to check out their website or their Twitter feed. Tax filing companies, if, if they're ever affected, they should also be monitoring for sort of spoof domains. So there's tools you can use like DNS Twist, for example, that's a good free resource to do, to do so to see if there are any domains of theirs that might be spoofed or domain squatting is going on. And then organizations more generally, they should consider threats like business email compromise. They should really look at it, not just this time of year, but throughout the year. And they should think about it. It's not always just about wiring funds. So as we said here, it's sometimes about sending sensitive documents or even tax documents, which at first glance might not seem like the most far-fetched request. If you receive an, an email or someone contacts you that you haven't spoken to them before. So what should organizations do in that regard? They should update their security awareness training, update their content, include business email compromise into, into their planning. Finance teams and accounts teams specifically, they should have bespoke security awareness training. Uh, new hires should be made aware of these things as well. When you're doing this type of training, one of the good things to do is actually to simulate these type of attacks. So actually send out phishing emails, see how your employees would respond. Do they know all their roles and responsibilities? All great stuff to look out for. Our next story has made big headlines this week, and again, it concerns processing chips, this time affecting AMD. There's been 13 vulnerabilities that have allegedly been discovered that allow attackers to install malware on AMD processors. Harrison, you know your processing chips from your chocolate chips. What's going on? So yeah, so this week, CTS Labs kind of detailed 13 vulnerabilities, which allegedly showed that an attacker could install malware on AMD processors and allow access to protected information located within uh, processor chips. So there's, these would be things like secure keys or passwords, things like this. Um, CTS Labs claimed it provided AMD with a 24-hour window of, uh, of a notice before going public with these vulnerabilities, though no technical details were released with the research that was released publicly. But basically, there were four hypothetical attacks that uh, the researchers categorized these 13 vulnerabilities into. Uh, which affects two specific lines of AMD processor chips, Ryzen and Epic. All of these vulnerabilities required admin level privileges, so uh, a little bit harder to exploit. Master Key actually also required a reflash of the BIOS, which a lot of times requires a physical access to the machine itself. So all this to say that these vulnerabilities are not that easy to exploit. So Harrison, I remember when I was reading up on this story and when the news broke, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of people on Twitter and Reddit being quite upset uh, with what happened as well. Can you, can you explain what exactly happened there? Because there was getting a lot of criticism for the, for the researchers who actually released this information. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of background. 
there's a general kind of guideline that a lot of bug hunters and vulnerability researchers will follow, uh, which is to give the company responsible for the software or the hardware kind of like a, a grace period. So like a 30, 90, 180 day window to address the vulnerability and ideally start working on a patch or make an announcement, basically acknowledge the, bu the bug. The researchers went a different route and supposedly gave AMD a 24 hour window to address the vulnerabilities before going public with what they discovered, which is something that really didn't sit well with a lot of people in the wider kind of infosec community bubble. Um, the white paper that was released was also criticized for not really having any hard technical details, which could potentially prove or disprove what the researchers were, were claiming. Additionally, there was also a blog post that came out from a different website, which claimed that these vulnerabilities would be so severe that AMD would be forced to file for bankruptcy, which is a pretty, pretty doom and gloom statement. Uh, so it, it led a lot of people to kind of question what was going on. Why, the, why these two things are kind of important is that as people on social media and people on Reddit were researching the company, uh, which is CTS Labs, they discovered it had been created in mid-2017 and only had a couple employees. One other thing that people were pointing out was that in the legal statement provided by CTS Labs on their research, they claimed that they, quote-unquote, may have an economic interest in the companies that are discussed in the report. So again, all this combined together was really not sitting well with people, and a lot of people started to speculate that maybe this was kind of a stock manipulation type of game going on. You've got lots of people criticizing it, and for the reasons that you outlined, Harrison, to add a bit of balance, is there any people who believe the research was had some nuggets of truth in it, and, and there's anything we can take away from this? Yeah, so there was one security researcher who was actually paid to review their research, uh, and this, this research that he was given was actually included, uh, included the technical details. So this is before it was published, and he stated that through kind of all this hype that's been going on, that these vulnerabilities do exist. So right now, it's kind of his word and CTS Labs' word against AMD, uh, who claimed that they've just they've just started to kind of investigate kind of what's going on. Um, but without really any technical details for general public like us or people in the InfoSec community to go over, uh, we don't really know if there is something to be concerned about. But without any technical details for the general public to analyze, we don't really know if there's something to really be concerned with just yet. Okay, speaking of compromised hardware, our next topic is an espionage campaign that used compromised micro-tick routers as a foothold to drop malware onto victim machines. This campaign has been called Slingshot. Rose, who's been targeted as part of this? Well, Slingshot has been attributed with targeting about 100 entities throughout the Middle East and Africa. We're not really sure who the victims are yet. That hasn't really been reported but it seems like Slingshot has largely focused on individual users with a few commercial organizations and government institutions thrown in there for good measure. And I should point out that although it's only just been reported, it's not a new campaign. It looks like it's been going on since about 2012. Right, and, and how exactly do these attacks work? 
So we think there are a number of infection vectors, but the one that we know about is that Slingshot uses compromised micro-tick routers and exploits the Winbox software to enable configuration of the device. This allows attackers to replace a legitimate direct library link with a version that has malicious code embedded. So essentially, when victims install these routers, attackers are able to insert malware onto their devices and networks. The malicious library is then downloaded with system privileges. So there are two malicious components involved in this. There's Canada, which is not spelt like the country, but it's a kernel mode module, and Gollum app, which is a user mode module, and Lord of the Rings fans, I am looking at you to attribute this. Um, in kernel mode, Canada grants the threat actor the ability to execute control, and then Gollum app includes a whole ton of functions designed to gather information from the target including screenshots, keyboard data, network data, passwords, kind of everything you can think of. We've seen this kind of router exploitation tactic used before uh, with malware recruiting infected routers to become part of a larger botnet. I know in the last few months, a few different botnet malwares like Satori or Mirai were observed trying to spread amongst different router models. Is this somewhat similar? Yes and no. So it's similar in that it involves a router, but Slingshot is unique to anything we've seen because it uses the router as a foothold, um, rather as it's, so the router isn't infected with malware itself. It's just a kind of way of getting in. Have Microtik taken any steps to secure these devices? And is there any advice that listeners might want to hear about these routers? Yeah, so Microtik have taken steps to secure their devices. In particular, they've removed the ability for Winbox to download files to user devices, which should prevent the current infection method used. And so our advice would be that users download the latest version. Excellent stuff. And on to our final story of the week, and that concerns the Green Flash Sundown Exploit Kit, which has been targeting a familiar Adobe Flash exploit to deliver the Hermes ransomware. I quite like this. I, I think we haven't seen much reporting of exploit kits of recent, um, so let's, let's dig into that a bit. So I think a good place to start, Mike, would be with exploit kits, just for our listeners who might not exactly know where they are. So an exploit kit is a, is a tool or a piece of software that's generally scans for vulnerable applications or servers and then runs a particular piece of malware. So this is most commonly used on web, on web pages, so the exploit, kit will, the exploit kit will scan silently in the background uh, on a particular target while someone is maybe browsing on a web page before delivering a particular payload, which might be a remote access trojan or a piece of ransomware, which is what happened in this, in this case. Now, exploit kits are quite lucrative, so those who develop them usually sell them to other other criminals, as this obviously lowers the barrier entry for, for those people buying it. And developers will often update their exploit kits so they can deliver different payloads, so they can add new capabilities, so they can look for new vulnerabilities. And then this one in particular, so we're talking about Green Flash Sundown. So this is a version of the more well-known Sundown exploit kit. Green Flash has been attributed with distributing the Loki ransomware, which is one of the major ransomware families to users in Korea and Taiwan around about October last year. Now, Sundown, which is sort of the parent of this one, so that came around around 2015, and at one time it was one of the most popular exploit kits in circulation. The majority of the exploits 
um, used by Sundowner for Adobe Flash and Microsoft Internet Explorer. And what's interesting about Sundown is the source code for it seems to have been leaked a few years ago. And over the years, we've seen several different sort of exploit kits that are either variants or partially based on Sundown source code. So we've got Sundown Pirate, Disdain, and now we've seen it's like we've got Green Flash Sundown as well. Yeah, and one of the things that would define a good exploit kit was how quickly they can incorporate new CVEs within there and to make them have higher chances of success. This CVE said it's a little bit familiar. Uh, Rose, can you talk us through what it is, where we've seen it before? Yeah, CVE 2018-4878. I mean, we have to come up with a better, snappier way of naming these guys because, whew, um, but essentially, it's an Adobe Flash vulnerability, which exists in version 28.0.0.137 and earlier, and it allows attackers to take control of the affected systems. Now, it was first reported in January this year, and we've seen it popping up in a number of campaigns since then. So it was used in a malware campaign which targeted South Korea. There was some activity attributed to APT37, which is the North Korean threat group. And then it was also linked to the Lazarus group earlier this month, targeting financial institutions. So it's been quite prolific since discovery. I see, I see. Uh, certainly a CV to look out for. Um, I wonder whether that will feature in one of your key takeaways, Rose. Anybody got anything to say about the ransomware variant itself? So, yeah, Hermes kind of acts like a fairly standard ransomware in that it encrypts files on an infected system's hard drive and produces a ransom letter to the system's operator, providing a Bitcoin address for victims to pay and then hopefully receive a decryption key to unlock their files. In terms of a ransomware payload itself, uh, it's pretty standard to what we've seen before. Yeah, I second what Harrison says there. It's not, it's not necessarily the most sophisticated of ransomware variants we've seen. So it relies on social engineering and the victim has to click through loads of pop-ups in order for infection to occur. Now, if we compare this to another ransomware we talked about quite recently, which is Samsung, that's a lot more sophisticated. So that will actually harvest admin credentials and then self-propagates infecting every single endpoint in the network. And then what's also even better for the operators there is that they are then able to set ransom demands depending on how many machines um, you want unlocked. So they set a specific ransom demand for one machine. If you want half the machine, that's obviously multiplied. And then we've heard of values of like $33,000 if you want to uh, decrypt all the machines on a particular network. So... Yeah, as Harrison said, it's not the most sophisticated. I think what's consistent in both of these is the use of vulnerabilities. So Sundown here is exploiting a flash vulnerability. Samsung works through vulnerable JBoss servers. So there's obviously ways to mitigate against these. And vulnerabilities and patching, as we always say, is, is one of those ways. And for people wanting to know more about ransomware, uh, we've recently done a webinar with the FBI and pod regular Harriet Groon, uh, which provides some awesome content on the different families, variants, what they're exploiting, and what organizations need to be considering uh, to protect themselves against ransomware. We'll include a link to that recorded webinar within the body of the podcast description. So do check that out. But that is, I'm afraid, all we have time for this week. But not before we have time to go to each of you and have a, a little key takeaway. Harrison, let's go to you first. So, yeah, so my key takeaway this week is kind of a recommendation for security practitioners in the InfoSec community. Uh, 
to try and not get caught up in the hype of something like a major vulnerability disclosure, like we talked about today, um, something that we try to do here at Digital Shadows as analysts when a story like the AMD vulnerabilities breaks is kind of look at the facts of what is actually available, or in this case, what isn't available, and, and kind of really get to the bottom line of how does this affect our clients. So for any security practitioners that may be listening, I'd recommend kind of being a, a calm voice of reason when these types of high visibility and high profile news stories come out uh, to maybe some others in your organization that might be a little bit more caught up in the hype. Great stuff. I'll over to Rose. So my key takeaway this week would be to patch your systems and in particular, anything that might be affected by our new favorite CVE, CVE 2018-4878, because we've seen it so much in the last couple of months that it's definitely going to be something that's going to be exploited and used by threat actors in the next two to three months. Outstanding. Thanks, Rose. Rafa, what, what have you got? So yeah, to build on the, the recommendations and advice I was talking about to do with tax fraud, this is more for, for CFOs, for finance teams, for accounts teams. So they should implement certain checks and balances to prevent both tax return fraud, business email compromise, phishing, particularly because there are threat actors out there, criminals trying to get them to transfer funds or sensitive documents, as I said before. So what sort of things can they do? So one good thing is requiring multiple staff members to have approval for payments over a certain threshold. Then on top of that, you can limit the number of staff who can approve payments over that threshold. You can have uh, other checks and balances in place, so verbally validating an invoice payment, using extra scrutiny when paying out to new or first-time vendors or suppliers. And then, as I said before, conducting tables of top exercises, simulating attacks such as business email compromise, social engineering. So that's some advice specifically for CFOs and finance teams. Great stuff. Thanks, Raf. And thanks, everybody, for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's Shadow Talk. For more information and research from Digital Shadows, visit resources.digitalshadows.com and follow the link provided to learn more about ransomware from the FBI.